Welcome to JAG Talk, a podcast series featuring Navy JAG community experts. Listen to in-depth discussions about different legal fields and hear insights and lessons learned from practitioners across our enterprise. Chapter 1, Environmental Law. Hello and welcome to our discussion of the Navy JAG Corps environmental law community. Um, I think most of our listeners know that the JAG Corps has a few different specialty communities like operational law, military justice. Uh, today we'll be talking uh, in detail about the environmental law practice, uh, which is a very important practice to the Navy and to the Navy JAG Corps. Uh, unlike some of our other areas of law, this is an area where an adverse court ruling or an adverse outcome can actually put a complete stop to major fleet operations or, or exercises, things of that nature. We'll be talking about how that works a little bit later. My name is uh, Commander Brendan Burke. I'm the uh, Division Director of the Navy OJAG Code 12 Environmental Law Division, joined here today by Captain Justin Clancy at uh, OPNAV N4 and Captain Randy Vavra, who works for the uh, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Environment Installations and Energy. Um, and I will turn the floor over to Captain Clancy. Do you want to introduce yourself for the sure. Thanks, listeners? Sure. Um, Justin Clancy, Captain Justin Clancy. I'm currently the legal counsel for OPNAV N4. That is the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Fleet Readiness and Logistics, and that's currently Vice Admiral Dixon Smith. Uh, A little bit about myself, I began my career uh, back in 1998, and I've kind of had the requisite uh, trial and defense tours, uh, SJ tours, uh, both both ashore here in CONUS and also overseas. Um, I got my first taste of environmental law when I was teaching at the Naval Justice School, Um, and from there uh, I had the opportunity to attend postgraduate school at Georgetown University Law Center, earning my LLM in environmental law. Uh, and I went to Navy Region Southeast, where I was the Region Environmental Counsel for Navy Region Southeast. Uh, and then from there, after three years at, uh, at Region Southeast, I came up to the Pentagon, and I've been at OPNAV N4 for the last uh, year and a half. Captain Vavra? Yeah, thank you, Brendan. So my name is Commander Randy Va- uh, Captain Randy Vavra. Congratulations on your recent promotion. Thank you very much. Obviously, it's still I'm still working my way through that. Uh, I'm the Senior Counsel for Fleet and Operational Environmental Law for the Office of the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, as, as Brennan mentioned, although he, he got a little backwards. Energy goes first. It's Energy, Installations, and Environment. And currently we've got our PDAS and who's acting. So Mr. Iceland is the Acting Assistant Secretary, although at the time of this recording, we right now have a nominee for, for the Assistant Secretary, so we hope to have somebody in the building in the seat soon. Um, like Justin, I began my career doing general general work. I was first in, in Siganella as a trial counsel. I went to Sasebo as defense counsel, legal assistance officer, tax officer. Then came back CONUS and started doing staff judge advocate work and had the opportunity to go get an LLM at the University of San Diego in environmental law. I completed that in 2008. And my first tour in environmental law was out at Pat Fleet. As the, as the Assistant uh, Environmental Counsel for the Pacific Fleet. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about what we do with the fleets and environmental law and the fleets and the practice of the law there. Went from PAC Fleet to the Pentagon where I was counsel at Office of Legislative Affairs, OLA, and I covered the environment and energy portfolios at OLA. Then I went to Guam for three years and I was the fleet judge advocate out there and continued. I was able to continue doing environmental work 
folks listening probably are aware we have a lot going on in Guam with the relocation of Marines from Okinawa, uh, with training ranges being built up in the CNMI. Anything, anytime you build stuff, anytime you bring new people in, anytime you relocate assets, you've got an environmental component. So it was very busy out in Guam and it remains very busy. After Guam, I came back to DC. I, I served briefly in Justin's build as OpNav N4 Council. And currently, I, as I mentioned, I'm the Senior Counsel for the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy Installations and Environment. Thank you, sir. And as I said at the uh, lead-in, um, I'm Commander Brendan Burke. Um, I've been in the Navy JAG Corps since 2005. Uh, like most folks, I started off doing legal assistance and uh, defense counsel. Uh, after that, I was uh, installation SJA for two years. And as I sit here remembering that tour, it occurs to me that that's a tour where I wish I would have known uh, a lot more about environmental law uh, than I did at that time. Uh, after that, I went to uh, USS George H.W. Bush, where I was a command judge advocate. And again, I wish I knew uh, more about environmental law in that tour as well. Um, from there, I went to U.S. Fleet Forces Command, where we did have environmental lawyers on staff. We'll talk about what they do later. Um, and it was there that I kind of learned about what environmental lawyers did and became pretty interested in it. So after that tour, I went to uh, postgraduate school, George Washington University here in the city. Uh, graduated with a Master of Laws degree in Energy and Environmental Law. So I should have known that about the uh, EINE, uh, Captain Vavra, sorry about that. Um, and after that tour, most folks typically will go to an environmental billet. Uh, I did not. I went to a, an officer in charge billet uh, in Region Legal Service Office, Mid-Atlantic. I did my first environmental tour after that at uh, Code 10, the International and Operational Law Division at OJAG, where uh, Code 10 does have one environmental law billet, the Maritime Environmental Law Portfolio, which deals with a lot of uh, international law and law of the sea issues related to environmental law. And uh, from there, I moved to my current position as the Division Director at Code 12, which is the Environmental Law Division. So let's talk for a few minutes about uh, what a uh, lawyer in the Navy JAG Corps environmental law community does. Uh, the environmental practice in the Navy is uh, generally divided into, into two major areas. We have the, the shore installation um, area of practice, and we also have the fleet and operational area of environmental law practice. Uh, we also have uh, you know, some, a catch-all category with some other uh, jobs that don't fit neatly into either one of those two categories, but we'll talk about all three of those areas. And I think our listeners will be interested to know that there's kind of something for, you know, every kind of lawyer. If you're interested in litigation, uh, we have folks that are doing very complex uh, litigation-related work. Uh, if you're interested in transactional work, we have folks who are uh, involved in environmental planning, dealing with uh, scientists, engineers, working up very complicated environmental documents. Uh, if you're interested in SJA work, <coughs> commanders at the highest level are interested in, in our issues. They affect operations. If you're interested in operational law, uh, environmental law overlaps that very well. So uh, let's first talk about the, the shore installation practice. Captain Clancy, do you want to discuss that? Sure. Thanks, Brandon. Um, what I thought I'd do is I'd just start out real quickly with describing our current office at OpNav N4. Um, we're a team of three attorneys. Uh, all three of us, uh, they're environmental law P-coded billets, 1207 P-coded billets. So all three of us have an environmental law degree. We'll talk um, a little bit more later about what 1207P uh, and all that means when we talk about the career path. Right, absolutely. Um, so uh, all three of us, again, are environmentally trained attorneys. Um, N4's got a diverse portfolio, but the two uh, most uh, important portfolios for the purposes of this audience are N45, which is energy and environmental readiness. Uh, and then N46, which is basically shore installations and facilities. 
Um, and obviously, I think our listeners can glean from those two missions that they're obviously very heavy uh, on the environmental law practice. Um, and so in our oversight role as the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations, CNO's deputy on, on environmental law matters, we oversee both the shore uh, component of, uh, of the environmental practice uh, and environmental uh, substantive issues and the, and the afloat uh, side of the practice, which uh, Captain Vavra will discuss in just a second. Um, going to the shore, again, as I noted earlier, that's where my experience uh, began in the environmental law community. Um, out at the shore, some folks may know, we have what are known as RECs. Those are Region Environmental Council, and they're not to be confused with the other REC, the Region Environmental Coordinator, which I'll talk about in just a second. But our Region Environmental Council are out there, uh, and they're performing the shore mission. Uh, the laydown is basically this. We have two Region Environmental Council, nominally an 05 and an 04. Um, at every, uh, not at every region, but at four major regions. So that's Midland, uh, Region Southeast, Southwest, the Northwest, and then again we have the Boyne Billet at Joint Region Marianas, which uh, Captain Vavra uh, served in. And that's in Guam, right? That's correct, and that is in Guam. Uh, the rest of the flagpoles, Midland, of course, are they're all all the flagpoles. So Midland and Norfolk, uh, Southeast and Jacksonville, Southwest and San Diego, and the Northwest and uh, Naval Base Kitsap, Bangor area. Um, all those folks are attached to the RILSO uh, and they're add due back to the region commander. So it's very similar setup uh, to the region SJAs. Um, those folks are all individually responsible for providing environmental law advice to the region commander and also to the installation commanding officers. And that's very critical um, because the commanding officers are the ones that actually hold the individual permits. Um, that CO is the permit holder so therefore, the responsibility for acting in accordance with the per whatever environmental permit they hold is the responsibility of the CO. And then, of course, the downside is any violations are the responsibility of the CO. Um, so those folks are acting directly as the CO's legal advisor. So it's a very important job. Uh, nominally, the environmental law community ashore is divided between kind of our two law firms. Um, all the folks are aware that we have, uh, most folks are aware that we have an office of the general counsel side of the house, and then we have the Navy JAG side of the house. And really, the JAGs are going to be responsible for the operational, I'll call it, the operational component of environmental law. So environmental law issues that impact operations, and I'll talk about those in just a second. Our Office of the General Counsel brethren um, work more on the sure day-to-day -day compliance, as well as real estate matters, uh, all of which impact environmental law. But the bottom line is we work in close coordination with the region and Naval Facilities Engineering Command, Office of the General Counsel folks. Um, and really, that was another big benefit of the job was being able to work with OGC. I hadn't had a large opportunity to work with OGC previously in my career, um, and I really enjoy it because they bring a whole other perspective to the law, um, and I've learned a lot from, uh, from practicing law with them. Um, so what does a REC do? Well, we talked about that compliance piece, right, that permitting piece. So we've got lots of environmental, what we call media statutes out there. And for the folks who love the black letter law, this is the exciting, really exciting area of the practice, right? reading the Clean Air Act, uh, which is hundreds of pages in and of itself, but then getting into the regulations, you know, subpart quad Z. Um, but it's really a, a deep, deep practice um, that focuses on black letter law. So the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, which deals with management of hazardous and solid waste. Um, CERCLA, some folks know it, know it as Superfund, which deals with long-term remediation efforts. Those are things that the Region Environmental Council will advise daily uh, to that region commander and ICO on. 
um, and holding all these permits and operating, one, in compliance with the permits, two, living up to the Navy's high standards of environmental compliance, right, beyond what we're required to do by law. The Navy has its own policy, which is held by OPNAV and four as to how we're going to operate. And I can tell you that those policies obviously exceed the law in almost every case. So those regional environmental council are, are involved intimately um, in those issues. Obviously, not everything goes on time as it should all the time. So one of the issues I dealt with frequently as a rec was what we call an NOV. That's a notice of violation. Uh, that's essentially the regulator, be it the EPA or the state or potentially the Coast Guard, uh, where they come in, obviously, and they said, hey, you're outside of the bounds of your permit. Um, and that requires negotiations. And that requires coming to an agreement at some times and paying fines, investigations. So as you can see, there's really a lot of substantive work for that environmental council. By, by example, one of the large issues we just settled on a notice of violation was out of Cutler, Maine, which is one of our facilities, which uh, uh, is up in, uh, up in the Northeast. Um, and it's a transmitting facility. And, uh, and there was an issue of the generators there. But that was a large fine, $800,000 that we had to negotiate with EPA. So the stakes are large. Um, and the operations of that facility were absolutely critical to national defense. And Captain Clancy, you mentioned that the you know the, the permits are held by the ICO. Where do the funds come to pay those penalties? I think that would be interesting for folks. To yeah, it's grow. critical. They 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 come out of O and M operation and maintenance funds for the installation. <laughs> so so the COs have a lot riding. You know, both both personally, but certainly in their they're acting in their official capacity. But certainly, it comes out of their O and M. So there's other motivations there. Uh, to obviously keep in compliance. Uh, with the fine that big, obviously, we had to go to certainly Captain Bobber all the way up to your office uh, because that was a big deal. But uh, you can see there's a fiscal uh, part of this as well as an operational piece. And the bottom line is that facility could not afford to be offline for one day. So we had to solve that problem. So some of our listeners may, be, uh, may find it interesting to hear uh, that one federal agency can essentially sue or give a notice of violation to another federal agency, especially if you've had some you know, introductory constitutional law or administrative law uh, training. Uh, that, may, that may be a surprise to some folks. Yeah, I think it is. And I think it's, it's a surprise to a lot of folks as well that the states uh, can hold the federal government responsible. But, but what you find, and for those uh, administrative law junkies out there, you'll know this, uh, waivers of sovereign immunity. That's a large area of our practice. You know, can the state do that? Can EPA do that within the, within the concept of the unitary executive? So these issues come up, and they're wide-ranging. You know, a simple NOV and how we analyze that waiver of sovereign immunity could have far-reaching impacts, not only for the Navy, for the Department of Defense, uh, and for the federal government at large. Um, so it's just really, really interesting things, um, and really interesting issues. Uh, some of the other issues that, that the RECs deal with, obviously, are the planning piece. So that's the NEPA, as folks will know, the National Environmental Policy Act. We obviously do a lot of planning ashore. I'm going to let Captain Vavra talk about that more in the, uh, in the operational context in a second. Um, but one of the issues we deal with as part of our planning process is tribal consultations. And, uh, and for those folks who are interested in international law, uh, you may be interested to know that obviously when we consult with the tribes, we are doing government-to-government -government consultations. Those are between two sovereigns. Uh, the tribes are sovereign entities. They're sovereign governments. And we needed it to, uh, to enter into consultation with them anytime we're having an effect on their tribal resources, um, which uh, can often be an issue, obviously, uh, where they have traditional hunting or fishing grounds or traditional grounds that they uh, practiced um, religious um, ceremonies in, then we certainly have to be mindful of that uh, in accordance with the law and duty policy. So that brings up a host of, of interesting issues. Uh, beyond that, I'll give the last piece, which was really 
interesting to me as a region environmental council. I think all the things I've talked to up till now, I expected coming out of school, you know, the conservation, the compliance, the planning piece. But what I didn't realize is that there was this whole slice of what we call the Navy encroachment. Um, and it's really protecting the Navy's installation from outside forces. And those forces can come in many flavors. Those forces could come in the form of someone wants to build an apartment building off the end of a flight line, right? Well, I think we can all surmise that that's not a good idea for a number of reasons. One, the planes could hit it. Two, if the planes decide to crash or the plane has an accident and crashes, uh, then that uh, apartment building is in a bad spot. Um, so uh, as most folks can probably can probably recognize that, uh, you know, Navy installations and airfields in particular, which once were out in the middle of nowhere, for instance, in the southeast in Alabama, are now, you know, have, are surrounded by golf courses. So we're out there protecting that mission. And that's really the Region Environmental Coordinator working very closely with community planners um, and, uh, and the state and local governments. And I learned a lot, a lot about real estate law. Um, I've learned a lot about zoning. Um, and actually, our folks have had the opportunity uh, to get up and, and practice, uh, you know, uh, pro hoc in front of state zoning boards, uh, state energy siting commissions. Um, we've had Navy JAGs up there in uniform in court uh, with the permission, of course, of OJAG uh, uh, doing that work. And that's really exciting. And that's a great uh, and exciting opportunity. So, again, for anyone who wants to litigate, we've got those opportunities. Um, I know from my perspective, I had the opportunity to, uh, uh, to actually write a law for the state of Florida that dealt with encroachment. Um, and that's a big part of the REC's job is reviewing state laws and making sure that there won't be any impacts because DOD has the ability to go to those states and, and essentially say, hey, this law is going to impact our operations. So that's a big part of that REC mission as well. It sounds so, like you've had more, you know, not just reviewing the laws, but actually have a chance to influence or shape how those laws are, are drafted and developed. You do. You do. In fact, uh, there, there, is a, there is one line in the Florida statutes which, uh, which doesn't bear my name, but is, uh, are, are my words. So that's, it's kind of nice to know it's in there. But, uh, but all in all, a very exciting practice of law. But, uh, but on that note, I think I'll turn it over to Captain Bravo to talk about our second piece. Thank you, Captain Clancy. I, I don't know that I can make fleet and operational law as exciting as, uh, as, the, as the rec role, um, but I'm going to give it a shot. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about that, the fleet and operational environmental law piece, and what being an operational environmental lawyer means. I mentioned earlier that my first tour as an environmental lawyer was at Compact Fleet, Commander Pacific Fleet in Hawaii. And Fleet Environmental Council can be found at PAC Fleet and at Fleet Forces Command. So basically we divide the world up between PAC Fleet and FFC. Since I was stationed at PAC Fleet, I'm going to speak from the PAC Fleet perspective, but my comments are, for the most part, applicable to Fleet Forces as well. So to put it simply, PAC Fleet and Fleet Forces Command are responsible for ensuring the military readiness activities conducted under their authority comply with the applicable laws. And obviously that includes the environmental laws, such as uh, you know, some of the laws that Captain Clancy mentioned, but other ones that we, we haven't talked about yet today. Um, the Endangered Species Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, the Coastal Zone Management Act. There's a whole plethora of, of laws which apply to our fleet operations. So we need to make sure that the activities that we conduct are in compliance with those. Um, for example, you think about strike groups, right? You've got a strike group in San Diego, and it's getting ready to deploy. Well, before they deploy, obviously, they have their workups. They have their fleet certification exercises, or COMP2X and JTFX and whatnot. Well, those certification exercises, that training must be conducted in accordance with the environmental laws. Now, I, I'm sure folks have heard of potential effects or can imagine the potential effects that 
those training exercises might have on the environment, and for example, on marine mammals in the ocean. Those, you know, the activities you can consider that might be sonar, right? Sonar activities, you turn on the, the mid-frequency active sonar and, you know, the noise impacts that come from that, the potential impacts on, on the hearing of the marine, marine mammals, the noise impacts that come from the overflights of the, of the planes, detonation of explosives, the undeads, those type of things. So since these military readiness activities are considered major federal actions and they have potential impacts under those resource laws that I talked about, the MMPA and the ESA, the Navy, and in particular the fleets, since they, they own the assets and they're the ones planning the exercises, the fleets, PAC Fleet and Fleet Forces Command, must complete environmental compliance documentation, such as uh, environmental impact statements under NEPA, as Captain Clancy mentioned, or get permits under the Endangered Species Act and get biological opinions under the ESA or permits under the MMPA. Um, so Fleet Council out at PAC Fleet and Fleet Forces Command we are, they were, and I am, I was, I mean, uh, responsible for pro providing that advice to the PAC fleet commanders and staff to, run in, to, to ensure that we don't run afoul of these laws. And the risk, as Captain Clancy mentioned, uh, if we run afoul and if we do not properly complete the, the environmental documents is that regulators, such as U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, National Marine Fisheries Service, that they might object to our activities. And the objection might come in the form of the NOV, uh, it could come in, in the form of an enforcement action, uh, and, and there are personal liability for the commanders that undertake the action. So it could come in the form of personal liability. Also, and this is where I'm going to spend most of my time talking, because these laws apply to Navy military readiness activities, litigants have recourse to the court system to enforce the laws against us. So they can sue us. We can be sued if we do not comply. And bring, to bring this home to you, I'm going to briefly discuss a few cases where, uh, where the Navy has been sued for our military readiness activities. So the first one I'm going to highlight occurred back in 2002 when the Center for Biological Diversity, CBD, filed a lawsuit to prevent the United States Navy from conducting live fire training exercises on the island of Farion de Medinija. More commonly, folks may have heard of it known as FDM. Say that out in three the Marianas. times really fast. I can only do it once. So it's out in the Marianas. It's just north of Guam. So you've got the island of Guam. You've got Tinian and Saipan. And you go up that chain, there's an island, uh, FDM. We have a permit. We lease the entire island, and we bomb it. Well, back in 2002, CBD alleged that the bombing, the, the live fire shooting, both dropping bombs from planes and, and shore fire right from our ships, that uh, those could and do kill several species of migratory birds. And that the Navy did not have a permit for the killing of those birds. And that was a violation, they alleged, of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So you might know the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. It says you can't take a migratory bird without a permit. Well, the Navy didn't have a permit. So CBD was correct in that we did not have a permit. Our argument was that we didn't need a permit. Um, so those of you who have deployed in Westpac might, might uh, likely know about FDM and how important it is. It's the only live fire training range that we have out in the Western Pacific. Um, so it was pretty important to us that, you know, that we get this right. Unfortunately, the court held that CBD was correct because bombing at FDM can kill migratory birds. The Navy needed a permit and that permit we did not have, and therefore the, the court actually enjoined, said we could not bomb FDM anymore. So imagine you're a pilot, you're on a strike group deploying west, and you're unable to carry out vital live fire training because of a missing permit. 
Now, ultimately, the story has a favorable ending because shortly after this, Congress did amend the MBTA, the, the, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, and training at FTM continues today. However, fast forwarding to today, environmental compliance documents produced at PAC Fleet and Fleet Forces will always contain an analysis of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act to ensure we do not again, again run afoul of the law. Right? So that's one of the roles of the Fleet Council, ensuring as we look in the past at the litigation we face that now we're in compliance and that we don't make the same mistakes again. Maybe we'll make new mistakes, but we don't make those same ones again. And I think that goes to the comment that Brendan made is uh, kind of if you, if you run afoul of, of the law in the environmental context, uh, the impacts, the direct impacts on operations. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the point being, for, for a period of time there, our, our deploying strike groups are not able to conduct that training on FDM, and there's no other place for them to go and do it. So, second case I'll highlight took place in 2006 um, when environmental groups, including Natural Resources Defense Council, and you're going to hear their, uh, their name quite often as, as, I'm, as I'm speaking here. Um, so, NRDC, they sued the Navy and the Pacific Fleet in particular for our RIMPAC activities. Now, mostly, like, likely most folks listening are aware of the importance of the RIMPAC uh, exercise conducted by PAC Fleet around the Hawaiian Islands every two years. Well, in 2006, shortly before RIMPAC was supposed to kick off, we were sued. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote to you a little bit um, directly from the Washington Post reporting in 2006. In response to a lawsuit filed by several environmental groups, the U U.S. District Court Judge Cooper concluded that the Navy was not doing enough to protect whales, dolphins, and other marine mammals from sonar-related injuries and that officials had, had not fully considered alternatives to the Hawaii sonar training. She blocked the use of high-intensity sonar for 10 days while the legal issues were addressed. The temporary restraining order was issued three days before the sonar component of RIMPAC war games was scheduled to begin. In her ruling, Cooper found that the Navy had not complied with the National Environmental Policy Act, a law that does not allow for exemptions. So we fast forward from 2002, where we had bombing enjoined out at FDM. Now, if folks are aware of RIMPAC, you know, it's a multi-nation exercise. Uh, recent press has reported the Chinese are going to be invited. It is a major effort, major uh, training exercise of the Navy and the world's navies. And mere days before it was supposed to start, we had a federal district judge enjoin our activities. So that, that, to me, brings home uh, you know, the importance of operational environmental law, getting the planning right, because otherwise the mistakes really come back to bite us. So 2002, bombing at FDM and joint. 2006, RIMPAC and joint. Can it get worse? I wouldn't ask the question if it doesn't, in my opinion. So have you heard of US v. Winters, the 2008 Supreme Court decision? I think most folks have probably studied the case, at least heard of it, aware That's of it. Right. So when you look at the holding of the case, it's largely about the correct standard to apply for injunctive relief. You know, what, what do you look at before a court can order injunctive relief? And this is a Supreme Court case. Supreme Court case, yep. When we, we took a Navy case all the way to the Supreme Court. And, and that holding on the standard to apply for injunctive relief, that's obviously, you know, because of the holding, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, obviously important. And the case is, is cited uh, for that proposition. I think it's one of the most cited cases recently. Uh, for that proposition. And so the holding is obviously important, but that's not what I want to focus on. I want to focus a little bit on what happened at the district court level. So the U.S. Navy, through PAC Fleet, had scheduled 14 COMP2X exercises, so 14 training exercises in the Southern California area, and they were supposed to take place through January um, 2009. 
Now, uh, COMP2X involves the use of mid-frequency active sonar and recognizing that there's potential impacts to marine mammals from mid-frequency active sonar MFAS, the Navy and PAC fleet in particular had published an environmental assessment under NEPA and in that document found that the use of mid-frequency sonar would potentially cause minimal harm to marine mammals. Well, environmentalists, including NRDC again, took, uh, took, uh, took, uh, they, they disagreed with the finding. They disagreed with the, with the environmental assessment and they sued, arguing that the Navy's high decibel levels may have a deafening effect on whales. And they sought declaratory and injunctive relief against the exercises on the ground that we violated NEPA and other environmental laws. So again, you, district court, and this time it was a district court for the Central District of California, granted a preliminary injunction barring contact, uh, conduct of the exercises. I'll let that sink in for a second. You have a district court that has now told the Navy you cannot certify your forces before they deploy. That activity, that training, that vital military readiness training is enjoined. Now, ultimately, we were able to roll that injunctive relief back and we prevailed at the Supreme Court. That's great. And I would ask you to think a second, though, about the importance of the district court action, the training exercises off Southern California, pre-deployment certification exercises before our sailors deployed were enjoined by the district court because in the court's opinion, we had not properly completed our environmental documents. So that, that's when I started my law practice. I first got out my environmental law practice. I first got out to pack fleet in that time period and, and helped with the draftings of some of the pleadings. Uh, I got to listen in on the moot that took place. Um, and I, I'll tell you, the pack fleet commander recognized how vital the environmental law practice was at that time, and I believe they still do. So now some of you might be thinking here, I've been talking that, you know, this was 2002, 2006, 2008, nothing exciting is happening now. Well, to mention NRDC again, in 2014, NRDC and other environmental groups again sued the Navy for our Hawaii-based activities. And the settlement we reached then to that lawsuit doesn't expire until 2018. So this is very much living, real-time breathing law that we're practicing. And just one last thing I, I want to mention on this. Talk of all this litigation might make it sound like the Navy's out there breaking the law and breaking the environment. But I want to go on the record and say that I am proud of what the Navy does, the environmental planning we do, the environmental research dollars we invest, and the high quality, environmentally minded people we get to work with. Striking the right balance between vital military readiness activities and environmental stewardship is not easy. Uh, but in my 10 years experience practicing environmental law in the Navy, I believe we're exceptional stewards of the environment, and I'm proud of my line of work. Well, thanks. That's a, a great overview of the two kind of major segments of our practice in the environmental law community, both on the shore facility side and the fleet and operational side. Um, as I said a few minutes ago, we, we also have, you know, as, as any community might, a few jobs that really don't fit into either one of those two paradigms. I'll talk briefly about some of those jobs and where they are and what folks uh, might do when they're not in one of those two major fields. Uh, for example, uh, my own organization, Code 12, uh, within OJAG, the Environmental Law Division. We have two environmental law attorneys within Code 12. Our primary role is to advise the Judge Advocate General on issues related to environmental and energy law and help him in his capacity as he advises the Chief of Naval Operations and the Secretary of the Navy on those issues. We, we support him in that role. We also have a, a community management role for the environmental law community. Uh, our community has about 60 officers uh, in the Navy JAG Corps. 
are members of the environmental law community. And of those 60 officers, we have 27 active billets or active jobs uh, that those officers can go to. Uh, they range from the 04 to the 06 level um, at different places in, in those two areas that we, um, that we talked about a few minutes ago. Uh, and these other one-off jobs that we're, that we're talking about now. So uh, the community management piece of Code 12 involves with, you know, looking at how we're doing training those officers, uh, how, how are we setting up the kind of career progression for them, uh, do we have the jobs in the right places, do we have the right people in those jobs, um, how are we doing with outreach to the community and, and keeping folks uh, aligned and marching in the same direction. Uh, another place where we have environmental law attorneys practicing in the JAG Corps is at the Office of Legislative Affairs. Uh, Captain Vavra, you mentioned a minute ago um, an amendment to the, um, to the statute that, that worked in the Navy's favor after the bombing case, uh, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Um, we have an attorney, a JAG Corps attorney on the OLA staff who deals with environmental law issues, both responding to inquiries from members of Congress and congressional committees and also helping to advance the Navy's interests in, in drafting and developing legislation as it goes to Congress. Uh, we have a, a Navy JAG captain on the National Oceans Council staff. That's a, that's a member of the White House staff uh, actually working uh, over at the White House on oceans policy issues. Uh, very interesting line of work. And we also have uh, an environmental attorney uh, within Code 10, the International and Operational Law Division. Uh, that attorney, uh, that's the job that I had before coming to Code 12, uh, working maritime environmental law issues related to uh, a lot of overlap with law of the sea, um, issues that relate to Navy's ability to train and operate um, outside of the United States. So after hearing all of that, I'm sure that most or all of our listeners are wondering, how do I get into this Navy JAG Corps environmental law community? And uh, fortunately, Captain Clancy, as a prior detailer, uh, you have hands-on experience as to how we bring new officers into the community. You want to talk about uh, how that works? Sure. Be glad to talk about that. Um, so the process for, for getting into the community uh, is fairly simple. Uh, it's part of the slating process. So as everyone in the JAG Corps, I'm sure, is aware, uh, for the 04 and above jobs, uh, that uh, there is an annual rollers list published. And on that rollers list, you will see Environmental Law LLM. Um, the billet number varies every year, sometimes. As a general rule, we have four, although in certain years we've surged up to as many as six. And in other years, we've, we've dipped below that, and obviously that kind of depends on funding and money. And I think this may be a, a good time to note that unlike some of our other specialty communities, like operational law, for example, you can go to PG school for operational law, but not necessarily everyone who, who does a job in that field has been to school. But by contrast with environmental law, almost all of our detailed billets is going to be an officer who has been to postgraduate school, gotten the master's degree in environmental law, and gotten the, the P code, if you want to talk about what that is, uh, before being detailed to one of those jobs. Absolutely, and that's a great point to start off with, Brennan. Yes, that essentially a prerequisite for serving an environmental law billet is the LLM and the P code. Um, and so, uh, so the school is the start of that process. When we talk about P codes, we're talking about certain billets which are coded for a certain subspecialty. Um, there are two basic subspecialties you'll see in the, in the Navy, and this is Navy PERS personnel command wide, 
you have an S code, which is experience in a certain type of job. So if you practiced operational law in a specific billet for three years, you can apply, as some of you may know, to the detailing shop and ask to be given an S code, which says that you have some expertise in that area of the law. A P code is actually a job that's billeted for someone who has an, inter, uh, an LLM, either an international law, environmental law, military justice, um, and only folks with that LLM degree can be detailed to those jobs. So that's what we call a P-coded officer or a P-coded billet. Um, so how do you get one of those P-codes? Well, like I said, it starts off with the slating process um, and you can request it. Now I did mention the rollers list, as we all know, is for the 04 to 06 jobs, but um, we have, and O3s are able to ask to go to school for environmental law or any of the other school curriculums, um, actually. Um, so it's open to, to senior lieutenants as well. Um, I would say nominally that uh, kind of perfect time uh, is that uh, mid-grade 04, but again, we have, we've uh, sent lieutenants to school for environmental law and we've sent commanders to school for environmental law. So the window's fairly, fairly wide. So it starts with your request on your, uh, on your um, um, billet request sheet uh, to ask for school uh, and to ask to be uh, to detail to, uh, to the environmental law curriculum. Um, if you're selected, obviously, in the slating process, you get notified by the detailers. And the folks that are going to school usually get notified a little bit early because school applications are due. And some folks are thinking, well, how does that work? Um, and actually, uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting process because you're kind of back to where you were before going to law school. You need to do it yourself, right? So when you've been detailed to school, the detailers will call you and they will say, okay, now it is time uh, to apply um, and off you go. So folks are wondering, well, where does that leave me? How do I know which schools I should apply to? Well, we're in the Navy, so we know that we have a list, right? There is a list of approved schools um, and those schools are nominally George Washington University, Georgetown University Law Center, Vermont Law School, Lewis and Clark, uh, Berkeley. Um, those are probably what I'd call the big five in the environmental law community. And those are the approved schools that are on the Naval Postgraduate Schools list. And by the way, the Naval Postgraduate School runs the civilian institutions, master's degree program for the entire Navy. Yep. That list of schools is reviewed every couple of years. Um, but the, as you said, those are the big five. Um, certainly students are, are able to apply to other schools, um, and we've seen this in the other subspecialties probably more often, uh, but it really comes down to does a school offer the courses that are going to satisfy the Navy's education skill requirements for the environmental law subspecialty code, which we'll talk about in a minute. And so that's why you see most folks going to one of those five schools because those are programs that are uh, well established and we know have courses that satisfy what we're looking for as we bring a new officer to the community. And yeah. Brendan, I'm an example of somebody who went to a different school. I went to the University of San Diego for my LLM. Right. And it benefited me because I was stationed there and didn't have to relocate. And it benefited the, the Navy because they didn't have to pay for me to relocate. So case-by-case -case basis, there's other schools that do have environmental law programs that uh, you're able to get the LLM in. Absolutely, and those will be considered uh, some of that to, to whether uh, the JAG Corps is able to, to um, honor or, uh, or make good on those requests uh, comes down to obviously budgeting, location, the officer. Um, but in looking at those schools, I think you'll know if you pull up U.S. News and World Report right now, you would see, and I don't know because every year they kind of flip-flop, but Vermont and Lewis and Clark are perennially number one and number two in the country for environmental law. Um, GW, Berkeley, and Georgetown 
are all within the top 10, or if not within the top 10, right, right on the cusp. So uh, not bad choices to start off from, and then some opportunities beyond that. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's really uh, exciting to be in the classroom at one of those institutions, you know, amongst some really bright minds, um, which is great experience for, for our officers, but it's also great experience for those students. I know, and you gentlemen would share this experience that uh, I think a lot of folks were interested, a lot of my classmates were interested in what we did in the Navy and, and how the Navy operates and what the role of the judge advocate was. Um, and frankly, to diversify the views uh, in the classroom. Um, and I think that's a great opportunity to share for them, you know, for us to glean from, from uh, the experience of the civilian uh, law school crowd, but also to impart on them as well uh, what we do. So uh, you apply to your schools, um, and, uh, and then you will certainly get your uh, uh, acceptance letters, generally, uh, is what comes back, um, and then you let the detailers know. And then there's a separate, I'd call it kind of a mini slating cycle in the spring after everyone has gotten back to the detailers, everyone that's been detailed to school has informed the detailers or what schools they've been accepted to. Of course, you'll prioritize them in the, in the, or in the priority order you would like. Um, and then there's a mini slating session with the flags um, that will determine which schools you will actually attend. And you submit your deposit um, and then you'll start off in August. Uh, sometime there are prerequisites. Uh, some of the schools, Vermont, for example, works on a trimester system. Uh, so I think, believe the Vermont folks, Vermont Law School folks will start in the summer, um, but some unique opportunities there. Um, and that's ostensibly how the, uh, how the process works. Right. And so when you're in the program at school, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, we have education skills requirements. These are the, essentially the courses or subject matter that you need to make sure you, you cover. And so each student will have their education plan approved um, by the Navy going through uh, the Naval Postgraduate School. Um, Code 12 works with the JAG Corps Officer Community Manager to define what those education skill requirements are. Uh, the big ticket items are, you know, air pollution control, water pollution control, uh, control of solid wastes, which is the, uh, the Superfund and uh, RICRAIL, like you mentioned earlier and make sure that we get folks trained on the, the NEPA, the uh, environmental planning piece. Uh, the program allows students to further specialize if they're interested in energy law, like I did when I was at uh, George Washington, or international environmental law, um, but that's up to the individual student and it depends on whether the school that they're going to is gonna have courses that satisfy uh, that subject matter uh, for those given uh, academic terms. Uh, there's also a writing requirement uh, that's not unique to the environmental law uh, program. Uh, anyone who goes to postgraduate school uh, for an LLM is going to have a writing requirement. Typically that involves writing a thesis. Uh, a lot of times it's a good opportunity to have your, uh, your written work published either by submitting it to the Naval Law Review at the Justice School or by uh, publishing it in an outside uh, law journal, either at the law school that you're going to or at a different, uh, at a different journal. Uh, it's a good way to focus on a specific topic or issue in environmental law that's interesting to you. And I think a lot of folks find that uh, that experience uh, pays dividends as they move on in their career in environmental law. How does it work for uh, detailing to the first environmental tour once uh, a new officer graduates with their LLM degree. Right, so same process. You're, you're kind of right back in the slating cycle while you're in school. 
Uh, you know, again, the slate will be uh, will roll out in the spring, and you'll already be looking one year out for that next job. Uh, obviously, some of it's timing, depending on the availability of the jobs. But as we talked about, um, you know, nominally, that first tour officer is going to head to one of those two kind of core functions. They're going to head to uh, on the fleet side, where again, we've got officers at uh, Fleet Forces Command and Pack Fleet, but also individual billets at numbered fleets. Uh, that's one part of it. And then the second side is that Region Environmental Council uh, side we talked about, so at one of the five regions we discussed. Uh, there are some opportunities. Uh, Captain Bobber talked about OLA, and, uh, and there are some other opportunities. Of course, the deputy at Code 12 uh, could be a first tour uh, environmental law attorney, right. as is the, the billet at Code 10. Um, so some of it deals with timing. Uh, the rest of it is going to deal with the seniority of the individual, obviously, uh, and the billets we have, uh, the billets we have available. But all of them are excellent opportunities. Um, I think, uh, from your perspective, uh, Brendan, what you're looking at as you manage the community is that, you know, as the individuals move up in seniority, preferably we've gotten that experience. And I think Commander Vavra uh, is a very good example of someone who has done a number of those jobs. Um, and kind of hit them all and now is up at the policymaking level and really able to speak to the shore side and the fleet side and also uh, to the legislative side. And that's the type of skill set, you know, ultimately we, we try and develop, I think. Thank you. Some of our listeners, I think, may be interested in, you know, what would come next. You know, after I get the degree and I do that first tour, uh, what does, you know, my follow-on career options look like? Uh, do you want to talk about that, uh, Captain Vavra? Sure, I'll talk a little bit about it, but I'll, I'll defer to Captain Clancy as well. He's uh, He's got a lot of experience with it. So uh, there is no set career path, I think, would be the, 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 the beginning answer, right? Uh, we're a little bit different than the military justice career track um, because people do come in and out of the environmental practice. But I think it's important to keep in mind that um, some of the billets, some of the jobs, whether you're at Fleet Forces Command, PAC Fleet, at the OPNAV N4 job, in the EINE, ASNEINE job, that um, those jobs do require um, you know, a breadth of knowledge, right, and of experience. If you're going to be out there advising the fleet commander uh, at PAC Fleet, um, where we know we're going to again be sued, uh, because it's in the Ninth Circuit and, and litigation is likely. So when you're going to be on the environmental tip of the spear, if you will, uh, we, need to be, we need to be sure that you've done multiple tours, that you've seen enough and you're experienced enough that you can go out there and be representing and advising the clients appropriately. Additionally, uh, when you get to the OPNAV N4 level, when you're in my job, we're, we're dealing with regulators and we're dealing with the senior regulators from Fish and Wildlife Service. We're the senior regulators from the EPA. Uh, so these people have devoted their lives to their practice of law and so you're talking to people that have 20, 30 years of experience. Um, so to be credible, to be able to represent the Navy's interests, we need people that have done multiple tours and that, that is what the Navy needs, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, we have OGC counsel in my office who have done it for many years, but that is, it is not a sole specialty of OGC. It should be a core competency of, of the JAG Corps. So that takes people that are willing and able to do multiple tours. Now, does it have to be back-to-back? -back? Not necessarily. There's opportunities to go out and do your first tour, then go do XO, right? Do something with leadership and come back in. Um, although, there are leadership opportunities within environmental as well. Uh, Captain Clancy's bill where he's, you know, number one of three, right? So there's leadership opportunities within environmental. Um, 
So I guess my point is, and Captain Clancy, ask your thoughts, is there's no set way, but certainly, and people can one and out, but uh, from my perspective, we do need to build that core competency of people doing multiple tours within within the environmental community. And that's what I think you're trying to build to, Brendan, with, with your pyramid, right? With the idea that we have certain jobs that you can begin with and then move up in responsibility and, uh, and expertise. Right, so the pyramid that you mentioned, uh, you know, goes back to the, you know, where are our billets, you know, what level of, uh, you know, career progression for the billets. I think I mentioned earlier we have 27 uh, billets that are coded for environmental law. Uh, of those, 12 would be considered, you know, an 04 billet. So we're looking at the first or second tour. Uh, the next 10 are appropriate for the second or third tour. That would be at the 05 level. And at the top of the pyramid, we have, you know, five jobs that would be, you know, appropriate for senior commanders or, or captains. Uh, so the trick is to, you know, make sure that we're developing officers that are growing the expertise and experience that you just mentioned. Uh, but important to keep in mind that you can, you know, take a tour as an executive officer or a commanding officer, a staff judge advocate to a major command where your environmental experience will be helpful but won't be the, necessarily the primary thrust of that particular job. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's absolutely right. Uh, we'd be remiss in not mentioning uh, retired Vice Admiral Dorenzi, uh, an environmental attorney, uh, trained attorney, uh, retired uh, AJAG-01, uh, Admiral Foster, uh, environmental attorney, the current AJAG-01, uh, Captain Kiamos, uh, environmental attorney. So, right. um, so the leadership opportunities are absolutely there, and I think all those all three of those folks, uh, knowing them, uh, found the environmental law practice valuable to their to their careers. Well, I want to thank both of you gentlemen. It's been a real pleasure to uh, sit with you and uh, discuss, you know, what we do in the Navy JAG Corps environmental law community. Um, some of our listeners may have additional questions. Uh, there's a couple of uh, ways you can get more information. Uh, one good place to start would be to go to the uh, Code 12 portal page on the JAG uh, SharePoint. Uh, we have a lot of good information about the community uh, that's available there. Um, or you can certainly, you know, contact any one of us. You can find me, Commander Brendan Burke, in the Global. Um, or you can ask any of the environmental law lawyers that are in your area of practice. Uh, I'm sure they'd be happy to tell you more about the community and uh, answer any questions that you might have. Uh, thanks again for listening, and I uh, hope to see you all out in the fleet. For additional chapters of this podcast series, thank you for tuning in.